The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? That was a snippet from a report from China Central Television, the state broadcaster, reporting on President Putin's visit to Beijing over the weekend. He arrived in the city on Friday as President Xi's star guest at the Winter Olympics. It's interesting that 14 years ago, at the 2008 Olympics, it was President Bush who was the guest of honour. Now, the two governments in Moscow and Beijing have been getting closer over recent years, and that Friday meeting was capped off with the announcement of a new 30-year pipeline supplied by Russia's Gazprom into China. Presidents Xi and Putin released a statement announcing that friendship between their two countries had no limits. The world at the moment is seeing the closest Sino-Russian relations since probably before the Sino-Soviet split during the Cold War. So what's brought the two countries closer together and what implications does this have for the rest of the world and in particular for what's happening in Ukraine? My guest today is Alexander Gabriev, senior fellow at Carnegie Moscow Centre, who has been tracking the relations between Moscow and Beijing for years. Alex, welcome to the podcast. To start with, I wonder if you can give a brief overview of why Sino-Russian relations have improved in recent years, and then we can go into a few of those points in detail. You know, what are the main areas of cooperation? I would say that there are three major drivers behind the improvement of Sino-Russian ties. Number one is security along the border. Both sides share a colossal more than 4,000 kilometers of border, that has been a source of challenge, threats, risks, and expenditures during the Sino-Soviet split. Both Moscow and Beijing don't want to go back into this era where they had to spend lots of money and face enormous risks and spend a lot of time thinking about these challenges. Once the territorial dispute was settled, the formula, not always with each other, but never against each other, characterizes this part of the relationship. So maintaining peace along the border is a stabilizing factor. And that's the mother of many elements of the security cooperation that we are seeing. Trust building measures, regular drills, all of this comes from the fact that the border is secure and it needs to remain so because Moscow and Beijing have other more pressing security demands and priorities elsewhere. For Russia, it's obviously obsession with NATO and NATO enlargement. For China, it's the South China Sea, the Senkakus, Taiwan, border with India, but not Russia. Fun fact to illustrate that, as Russia is massing its troops on Ukrainian border, 
and in Belarus. Right now, the number of Russian troops on the border with China and Mongolia is the smallest in century since 1922. So the buildup of troops wouldn't be possible if not the improved relationship with China. So that's pillar number one. Pillar number two is economy. Russia and China have natural economic complementarity because Russia has abundance of natural resources as its role in global division of labor is provider of oil and gas and fertilizers and metals, whereas China is a giant market for commodities, has technology and has capital and infrastructure expertise. So this is a match made in heaven, just like Russia and European Union. For historic reasons, Russia has been more tied to Europe, but then over the course of the last two decades, Russia started to look east as well and diversify away from Europe to China with the goal at arriving in a more balanced trade structure. But there is still enormous potential to trade and invest more. And then the final pillar here is similarity of the political regime. Russia is a democracy by reading of its constitution. China is also a socialist democracy with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> but in reality, neither is a UK-style democracy. That has two very important consequences. One, all of the topic that caused so much allergy in discussions between Western leaders and Vladimir Putin or Western leaders in Xi Jinping just don't exist. Who poisoned Mrs. Kripal or who poisoned Alexei Navalny? What's happening to civil liberties in Hong Kong? These questions don't exist between Putin and Xi Jinping or any other Russian and Chinese bureaucrat. That also creates a very good bondage. And then when it comes to global governance, they are on the same boat on many critical issues of today, like, for example, internet governance, whether we should pursue universal access to information as a core liberty, or the state should have cyber borders and regulate availability of various types of content within those cyber borders. So Russia and China, as the two authoritarian permanent members of the UN Security Council, are in the same boat all the time on these issues. And that also creates a lot of room for cooperation. So security along the border, economy, authoritarian nature of the regime, and on top of that, as a secret sauce, comes simultaneous confrontation with the US. Following Russia's rupture, with uh, America and Europe after annexation of Crimea and crisis in Ukraine, Russia is pushed more towards China. And then a lot of these synergies between Moscow and Beijing are starting to pop up and be more deeply explored, developed, and uh, built into a pipeline of projects that bring two countries closer together. That's a brilliant overview, and I hope we'll get into all of that <laughs> on this episode. Can we start by talking about the, the economics first? In particular, I'm interested in the energy dependence on each other. So obviously, China is a net importer and has incredible energy demands. Russia, presumably, is strategically very important in supplying that. That's correct. Again, for historic reasons, Russia has been putting more eggs in the Europe basket not only on energy, but on many other elements of its economy. 
And that's understandable because not everybody remembers that China up to 1994 was an energy exporter. And it's only with the pickup of pace of reform and economic development brought by arguably Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour that China started to require more energy that it could produce in uh, Daqing or Xinjiang or South China Sea. But back in the middle of 90s, Russia was in the middle of this very painful transition from Soviet planned economy to a market economy with a lot of oligarchs and gangs and directors of the former state-owned enterprises fighting for control. All of these people mostly were interested into enriching themselves on existing pipelines going westward. So very few people back then thought that, oh, there is a market for us in China and China starts to consume more and given the speed of China's GDP expansion, we probably should tap into uh, this market and the sooner we do that, the better. So Russia was very slow to come to the party. And I think that the accelerators for this have been a need of Rosneft, the large state-owned company, to buy assets of Yukos, the private company of Michael Khodorkovsky. It took loan from CNPC, and that's how the first contract to deliver oil on rail to China mm. came into existence. Then the global credit crunch came. The oil price fell dramatically. And in 2009, the Russians were like, oh, we need another market and we need credits. And now how the first direct pipeline between the two countries, the oil pipeline, came into existence. And then in 2014, after Crimean annexation and the first sanctions and start of war in Donbass, Russia also rushed to conclude long negotiations with China over power of Siberia gas pipeline. So for Russia, it's only natural to diversify and to trade its energy resources both westward to Europe, traditional customer, which is now still the predominant customer and predominant consumer, particularly for Russian natural gas, but also tap into Chinese demand. And then for China, of course, China is interested in energy security. And one of the ways to do that is to diversify and to have as many producers and suppliers as you can. China started to see that energy is a leverage in its geopolitical spats with some of the partners. And for example, Australia is now a victim of this, where a lot of goods cannot be supplied to China because of the little trade war that China started. So China also seeks supplies from friendly countries or like-minded countries or countries that don't have political issues with China. And Russia, definitely, as the country that sits next door, comes to mind. And then final point here is also related to energy security. Bulk of energy resources that China gets from abroad come on maritime routes that are burnable, that are patrolled by U.S. fleet, and I think that this obsession in parts of the PLA and political leadership about potential maritime blockade, if something is happening in Taiwan straight, God forbid, at some point, and probably the shadow of the maritime blockade against Japan leading to World War II or Japanese participation and attack on Pearl Harbor is something that informs the Chinese leadership. And then 
direct pipelines going from Russia, like a friendly nuclear armed state to China, are also seen as something beneficial. So again, there is enormous potential to explore synergies there. That's fascinating. And you mentioned China trying to diversify where it's getting its energy from. Respectively, how are China and Russia doing in terms of the seller and buyer relationship there? Because is it the case that Russia is actually getting more reliant on Chinese demand for energy now? It's true that Russia is getting more reliant on Chinese demand, particularly on oil. For some companies like the giant, like the biggest uh, Russian state-owned company, Rosneft, China is now more than 50% of its sales. That's a huge figure. This share is likely to grow. Gazprom is still at the very beginning of diversifying away from Europe and uh, turning China into a big customer. Power of Siberia, the direct pipeline that's linking Russia and China, was launched in 2019. Its full capacity will be 38 BCM a year by 2020. BCM, barrels. means billions cubic meters of natural gas. Probably this pipeline will be expanded by another six BCM, but like if then the second deal on the Power of Siberia 2 pipeline that will bring gas from Yamal Peninsula up north in Russia, that's also resource base for Gazprom to supply its European customers. If that comes into existence, that will bring about 100 BCM of Russian gas to China. That's 50% of what Russia currently supplies to Europe. So it's it's still large, but it takes some years to arrive at this point. So a uh, problem for Russia is that China is pretty well diversified. China has set very ambitious goals on uh, peak of carbon emissions and then becoming a carbon zero economy by 2060. So natural gas is part of the answer in the short run. China is to double the capacity of power stations that generate electricity from natural gas by 2030 compared to 2020 level. But then Chinese demand for natural gas will peak. And Russia Mm -hmm. will be there with pipelines that lead only to one customer, that's China. And it will be at some point at the mercy of the Chinese side to determine the price of the contract. So that's an obvious commercial risk. The problem for Russia is it doesn't have very good other options because the hydrocarbon era is still there, but we don't know how long it will last. It's definitely not forever. And Russia is now in need to monetize the resources sooner rather than later. It doesn't have all of the technologies it needs, for example, to build large LNG plants. Gazprom doesn't have this expertise. So pipelines are much safer and cheaper answer to meet that necessity. And the final point here, in Russia, many economic decisions are explained not only by cost-benefit analysis, but by the power of stakeholders and Kremlin insiders who are involved. So two most important business people who built pipelines for Gazprom in Russia are Gennady Timchenko and Arkady Rottenberg, two longtime friends of President Vladimir Putin. And that's part of the answer why Russia prefers to build pipelines as opposed to building LNG. So both of these very powerful men are not in LNG business, they are in pipeline business. And uh, that's one of the justifications of why Russia will build a pipeline 
to China rather than another LNG plant.、Mm-hmm. And is that kind of imbalance in reliance on each other? Is that reflected across the trade between Russia and China? Because I think it's the case that the Russian trade dependence on China has increased, whereas the Chinese dependence on Russia, conversely, as a trade partner, hasn't really increased. That's true. I think that China's dependence on Russia is also increasing, but it's kind of a far more flat curve, rather than Russia really being much more exposed to China than before Crimean annexation. So in twenty thirteen, share of China as Russia's trading partner was just ten point five percent. Last year, it's about twenty percent. So it has doubled over the course of the last eight years, and definitely sanctions. Were a huge booster for this growth of dependencies. So、mm. the asymmetry is there, but again, so far the relationship is mutually beneficial. It's a win-win where Russia runs a comfortable trade surplus. The structure of trade is rather primitive, with Russia selling raw materials and China sending sophisticated machinery, industrial tools. But that's the reflection of the Russian economy as an exporter. So Russia has the same trade structure with Germany. Russia has the same trade structure with the European Union at large. So it says more about the nature of the Russian economy as an exporter rather than about the nature of China-Russian relationships.、Sure. So ten, fifteen years down the road, China will have more leverage. I think that I'm in the school of thought that believes that China. Will definitely try to take commercial advantage and monetize this leverage. Well, Russia has itself to blame. It should have spent previous twenty years of tapping into the Chinese market earlier, and doing that not only through pipelines but more through LNG, which would give flexibility. But this option is not available now, and Russia is pursuing the most beneficial option that is available in the real world. And so far, this bet is paying off. How does the Russian government, and I'd be interested in how the grassroots, how society feels about this as well. How do they feel about this growing advantage that China is having, whether it's in the economic spheres we've talked about, or technology you've mentioned, and I think in the military as well. I mean, it's a bit of a reversal of the Cold War dynamics, where China was led by the USSR for so many years, isn't it? That's true. I think that on military terms, China is now not a peer competitor to the US yet. In military terms, with Russia, like China has a much stronger conventional force in terms of numbers and hardware available. Russia is still a much more potent nuclear power. That will probably be fixed with China's effort to enlarge and modernize its nuclear deterrent. But by and large, we have two friendly countries that don't have a territorial dispute that are nuclear armed. So both have. Trust, but also like Ronald Reagan used to say, like trust but verify. So there is trust, but there is ability to deter each other through both nuclear and conventional forces. So I don't think that this is a source of big trouble. The economic asymmetry and technological asymmetry is definitely there, but the、mm. expectation is that if China wants to leverage that, that will happen probably ten, fifteen years down the road. It's not an immediate concern. We don't have political differences. That's also good, and China is not seen as a country that seeks regime change, and that's like really the red line for the Kremlin. So China is out there, and I think that the elite 
and the kind of part of the society that cares about the relationship sees China for what it is, a selfish great power, which is normal. I don't think that people make a lot of drama about it. People know that no, China doesn't want to make us more authoritarian or communist or change our way of life. China cares about its own self-interest, and it's normal. Just as a more powerful guy, it sometimes imposes conditions of cooperation, particularly since the balance is tilting towards China's side. That's what Russia does to its smaller neighbors all the time. It's not an unfamiliar pattern of behavior. And some other countries, including the U.S., also coerce. Smaller countries to do stuff that they wouldn't do under normal circumstances. Like nobody gets hyperventilation over that. <laughs> the more pragmatic question is like, okay, amid this U.S.-China rivalry, is it really that beneficial for Russia to burn all the bridges with the U.S. and to get into the point where relationship gets worse by every year, and then be more reliant and more exposed to China? And basically, instead of having the ability to arrive at a balanced relationship with the two superpowers and not being in either camp, to be more kind of aligned with China that Russia would love to under normal circumstances, that's a big question mark. But unfortunately, the sources of grievances and conflict between Russia and the U.S. run so deep, or so like the Russian leadership is so emotionally invested that there is no easy way out. So this. Partnership with China, apart from the pragmatic beneficial aspect of that, is seen as a booster for Russia in this confrontation with the U.S. and that's another valuable point for the Kremlin at the moment. Mm, that's really fascinating because I think you know, sitting from where I am in London, it often seems that Western, what we say the West, by which I mean the UK and the US, have this kind of pearl clutching about international relations. You know, whereas I think I read in one of your analyses for Carnegie that you said Moscow firmly believes that every great power will inevitably conduct espionage, and you were talking about China and Russia spying on each other. And you know, I think there's a very similarity of views from in China and in Russia about. It's just realpolitik at the end of the day. Every single country is going to work for their own interests, and as you say, there's no hyperventilation. But it's very strange if European allies of the U.S. get hyperventilation over spying because Angela Merkel can tell people a lot about this, right? So it's normal. It happens between closest allies, and Russia and China are not allies. They are great powers that are really religious about their strategic autonomy. So, for example, if Russia does any military moves on Ukraine, it doesn't need Chinese endorsement. It doesn't need Chinese military help. It has all the tools needed to do what it wants to do. And we can discuss like the rationality of it, the moral side, and the legal side, and whatever. If China wants to take back Taiwan by force at some point. It doesn't need Russian material support for this, so it will definitely have tools of its own. And yes, some aspects of China-Russian relationship right now, including transfer of weapons, Russian help to build early warning system for incoming missile attacks, joint development of weapons, is instrumental. But definitely, China will be at the point where it doesn't need Russia to do stuff or pursue foreign policy course or security course that it sees fit for its national interests. And、yeah. espionage here is just something normal. That's what great powers do to each other. 
Yeah, I mean, otherwise, what's the intelligence community for, really? <laughs> They're not going to do that. And Alex, let's talk about Ukraine, because obviously, as we're in quite a febrile time at the moment. And I mean, some commentators in the West have said that China would be keenly watching any Ukrainian invasion as setting a precedent for what it can do in Taiwan, or that China would quite welcome, or that China would support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How do you see how what Beijing thinks about what's happening on that border right now? First, I see zero connection with Taiwan. It's a very difficult, different terrain. It's an entirely different problem. I don't think that China gets inspiration or it needs Russian example to do stuff that it wants to do. I'm not a kind of very keen watcher of what's happening in Taiwan. My vantage point, unfortunately, the risk of kind of military confrontation has gone from like let's say five percent couple of years ago into double digits territory and continues to expand. But China will definitely want to have all the military tools ready at its disposal to make it a very credible threat to Taiwan that it can occupy the island with a manageable cost and that nobody will come to Taiwan's defense in like physically fighting for Taiwan. And here is the diplomatic path out of this and like Taiwan needs to surrender. So for that, China needs some time. It doesn't have all of these tools in place right now. It will probably have them by the end of this decade and who knows who knows when. So definitely there is no mechanical link. When China looks at Ukraine, I think that yes, security crisis in Europe is not necessarily a very good thing because China will not be forced to choose sides. But it definitely will be more aligned with Russia, supportive of Russia. If Russia moves into Ukrainian territory and there is uh, occupation or annexation or support for expansion of this self-proclaimed republics in Donetsk and Luhansk, I don't think that China will officially endorse that. I think that there will be the usual very careful language about need of peaceful resolution, central role of the UN, and China will be not choosing sides here. At the same time, big war in Europe is bad for relationship anywhere, be it uh, land connectivity projects through Ukraine on rail, which is part of BRI. So that's not a good sign. The positive things for China, I think, come in two categories. One is that if there is a security crisis in Europe, that will dominate the rest of Biden's presidency. It will be just sucking a lot of oxygen in the situation room in the White House. And then it will take a lot of time of President Biden and his national security team to address. And that means that they will have less time to spend on China and China will have more breathing space, just like what happened in 2014. Second part is that Russia will be forced to do more with China, perhaps on Chinese terms. So more pipelines, more reliance on Chinese tech, more reliance on Chinese financial lifelines. And that just increases Chinese leverage in regard to Russia. Mm. And speaking of territory, just moving to the point that you made earlier about there's not being a border dispute there. That sounds great from the perspective of Moscow and Beijing. But what I wanted to talk to you about was Vladivostok, because when I was doing the research for this, I hadn't realized that Vladivostok was actually Chinese in the 1800s. And it was part of the Qing Dynasty's Manchurian homelands. 
Can you talk a little bit about how, how it switched hands between the 1800s and now? Oh, I, th- I think that Russians will disagree on that. So these were, <laughs> these were the territories populated by local tribes that the Tsing court considered to be tributary to them. And I think that you have a lot of evidence of Chinese historic presence there, including stones and some graves. And that was definitely populated by tribes that paid tribute occasionally to the Tsing court in Beijing. Whether we can say about modern definition of boundaries and state borders is very questionable. But then with the arrival and influx of Russian colonizers, we had some border wars going back to 17th century. And then Imperial Russia has become the very powerful industrialized European nation that was part of the century of humiliation. So the treaties of Kyakta and then the Beijing Treaty signed after uh, the Boxer Rebellion was quelled have forced uh, Manchu court to cede this territory to Russia. So yeah, like when uh, Chinese read that Russia was part of the eight imperial powers dividing uh, China, it's totally true. So there is this historic baggage. I think that in the 80s, the Chinese leadership became pragmatic that there's just no way that you can reclaim all of this territory from a nuclear power that has its presence there. There is no Chinese demographic presence. So it's easy to reclaim Hong Kong because it was leased, and then there is a very different legal basis for this. It will be impossible reclaiming Vladivostok unless you decide to go to a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Right, so fixing this territory and just getting as much as you can at the time was a sensible strategy. And definitely for Russia, I think that jumping on this opportunity to fix the border issue was also an absolutely correct choice because right now, given the asymmetry and growing asymmetry between the two countries and sensitivities in the Chinese population about the historic issues and their assertiveness, it would be very hard to arrive at the deal that Russia ultimately got. Mm. I think that's so fascinating because I grew up in China and I was in school there until I was about 10. So growing up under the 90s patriotic education campaign that China brought in to really encourage, you know, patriotic love for the country, really, you hear a lot about this eight nation alliance, Bagua Lianjing. You obviously know that Russia is a part of it. But compared to the political sensitivity and importance of Hong Kong, which was lost at a similar time to Vladivostok, you know, it's just not, not comparable, really. I think people don't really see Russia in the same way that they see Brits in that sort of sense of humiliation. You know, it's interesting to note that the narrative of humiliation is politically flexible. Yeah, it's true, but it depends on which province you were educated in. I think that... Not in the north. Right, so Dumbay has far more stake in that, and that's part of the Provincial History Museum. There is a museum where if you see a white face, the guard will check the passport. And if that's a Russian passport, they will not allow the guests in because there is something that's really disturbing to the Russians. And that's depicting of the really dark pages uh, of history. And like these dark pages not only include chopping off some land that Manchus considered theirs, but also like there is a very ugly story of yellow scare before war with Japan and that the Cossacks and the local law enforcement forcing the Chinese population of Blagaveshens to cross Amur River 
and like hundreds and hundreds of kids and women and people died. And that's a terrible thing to do, right? So there are a lot of these dark pages that are there in the memory. And I don't think that they are as prominent, and you are correct, as UK or particularly as Japan, because on top of that, Bailin Jun comes World War II, right? And everything that uh, Chinese people have experienced at the hands of the Japanese. But I think that it's still there, and you're absolutely right that this historic memory is very flexible. And for example, Russia has an ex-Crimea, right? Before 2014, the Soviet Union has split. Crimea remained inside Ukrainian administrative border and was lost to Russia, although that has been kind of part of uh, Russian Empire and was predominantly populated by ethnic Russians since that was conquered in uh, late 18th century. That was not an issue. So it was kind of some nostalgia in parts of the society, but I don't think that that was an, like a national demand to return Crimea to the motherland before that happened. And afterwards, after it was chopped off and taken back to Russia, everybody suddenly discovered that, oh, like we needed that all the time, right? So it's indeed very flexible. And uh, my concern as a Russian would be that going forward, a lot of these historic grievances are not necessarily addressed in the Chinese educational system. And we don't have a way to talk about this and like to resolve it and to put this to historians. So I think that with Russia, we pretend that it's resolved, where in fact it's not. And uh, at some point, I think that as China gets more prosperous, more proud, more powerful, these issues unfortunately might pop up. By popping up, I don't mean that there will be a national demand to reclaim Vladivostok. It's insane and no pragmatic leadership would do that. But all the time there will be this narrative like, hey, we are treating Russia too good, remembering what they have done to us, right? And that will be an obstacle because despite the image that, oh, there is this very obedient, brainwashed Chinese population in the PRC and they're just like, whatever party tells the population believes, I don't think it's true. It's much more sophisticated than that. And this patriotic zeal is genuine, including among educated youngsters who are like, uh, spend their time in Harvard, but they come back convinced Chinese patriots. And this kind of far right-wing nationalism ideas resonate with some of them. So that will be part of this in the society and also with the younger generation of the bureaucracy. So all of these wolf warrior diplomats are not simply invention of Xi Jinping. I don't know whether you agree, but this is a genuine reflection of people saying that we are standing up. We want kind of allow ourselves to be bullied, to be treated. We have national interests. We are great power and we need to be much more forceful in pushing back. So I guess that there is a risk that China-Russia relationship will also encounter this. Russia is also a very nationalist society. And I think that this Latin Sinophobia that is now dormant and basically cured by the very good and stable relationship, the fear of Chinese demographic encroachment in the Far East is gone because of Asian society in China, like there is no labor migration. So I think that this is gone. But once China becomes very kind of vocal and fireful nationalist about it, we might be in trouble. So the relationship might get kind of more complicated. 
it's good time to address it now, but I don't think, unfortunately, that either side is willing to like really spend capital and time in detoxing these very sensitive issues. So unfortunately, they might pop up in the future. And that's not set in stone, but that's a probability. Yeah, I think you're right about that nationalism, not just coming from one man at the top. I mean, in some ways, he's just a symptom of China now, right? When, when people talk about, you know, why has Xi Jinping left Deng Xiaoping's Tagua Yanghui, the hide and bide strategy? You know, in some ways, China of now is not the same as China of 1980s. It's got much more weight that it can throw around, as you say, is the law of international relations, isn't it? That stronger countries try to get smaller countries to do what they want. So I think, I think that is fair. Um, and talking about Xi Jinping, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about personalities. So both these states and Russia, when it was the USSR, were seen as strong men states, you know, where the personality at the top had a lot of influence. Do you think that's true, that the personal rapport of the two leaders at any one time matters, like Putin and Xi, or Mao and Stalin, you know, and all that sort of pairing? Does that, how much does that matter? I think that does matter for two reasons. For the first time after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, we have the two leaders that are age mates and soulmates. So for Vladimir <laughs> Putin, Jiang Zemin, although he spoke Russian, was much elder. They didn't have that much time to work together, although they were very instrumental in kind of resolving the territorial issue and signing the peace treaty. With Hu Jintao, like Hu Jintao was 10 years elder. And uh, I don't think that any global leader can claim that he could have personal rapport with <laughs> Hu Jintao, who was just very kind of scripted. Uh, <laughs> Xi Jinping is a different creature. And then he and Putin are just six months difference, age difference. Putin is just six months elder. And there are a lot of similarities. Like Putin's father fought in World War II against the Germans. Xi's father fought in World War II against Japanese. Putin had a pretty rough childhood. Xi Jinping had a very privileged initial part of his childhood and that very rough part of his youth at during the Cultural Revolution. Both have daughters, like Putin have two daughters, Xi Jinping has one. Both want to make their countries great again, right? And I think that this feeling of powerful leaders of national rejuvenation, standing up against American uh, hegemony is very much there. And uh, there is this connection. I think that Xi Jinping, it appears to be, it's either very skillfully cultivated image or it's genuine that because of his father, Xi Jinping, there is this kind of more or less warm attitude towards Soviet Russia and a lot of kind of attention. Like Xi is interested in Soviet history for both of the kind of lessons to be learned from the demise of the Communist Party, but there is this emotional attachment to Russia. And then final point, Russia become a much more personalized authoritarian regime with the arrival of Putin. It's not just a more powerful Russian president, it's the Tsar. In China, the collective leadership, you know, term limits and stuff is also gone. Xi Jinping is a very different core, uh, right, than uh, Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin or Deng Xiaoping have been. So if these two structures get so much focused on the leaders, when the leaders get better personal rapport, all the bureaucrats down below say, oh, like my emperor likes this Russian Tsar. I want to do something with the Russians. Same in Russia, like they see 
that Putin is generally into China and they want to do something, they want to deliver on the China front. And that's also a glue. What's lacking here, I think, is that the glue on top is pretty strong, but we don't have that many good links with the society. I don't think that Chinese educated youth, those who don't go to Tsinghua, Beida and other kind of top universities and think about going abroad, mm. galvanized by the idea of going to Moscow, perhaps maybe with the exception for music or some arts, like there is no obsession with Russian culture like it used to be. And Sino-Soviet friendship is kind of ancient history for a younger generation. Same here in Russia, like there are more and more people who learn Mandarin and are more kind of exposed to Chinese global culture. But I don't think that the links between the two societies are as strong as, for example, links between China and the U.S., which really run deep and which still are one of the pillars of the relationship, although that pillar, unfortunately, also is in disruption. Alexander Gabriev, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of Perspectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.